Hello, Nate. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Adam. How are you tonight? Good. All right, excellent. Tonight we will be talking about Henry George while I drink this Shiraz. Tell us a little bit about him. Henry George was a uh, self-taught economist um, in the classical tradition, following John Stuart Mill, David Ricardo, and uh, and Adam Smith. And he, Henry George, was um, primarily concerned with the question of what causes economic inequality, what causes poverty, what causes the economic boom and bust business cycles. And the insights that he gained on this question were, in some sense, not uh, not unique. Um, he wasn't the first person to realize the importance of land and even to come up with the solution he proposed. But his his writing was so compelling and powerful, and he was the first person to um, compile this whole argument into a cohesive thesis. Um, and so his his book, which was called Progress and Poverty, that was intended to answer this question. Well, speaking of which, that is an extremely well-written book, and there are abridged editions that have been modernized for people who don't want to wade through Victorian prose. And I forgot the name of the gentleman who wrote that modernized edition. There are two modernized editions, but the the most recent one is the Francis Drake edition, uh, and I recommend that. It's 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 very good. I haven't looked at the other um, the other modernized version. Yes, that's the one I was thinking of, and it was a very enjoyable read. I don't know how much was lost in translation since I haven't read the original yet, but George has a very keen sense of getting to the point. He gets to the core of the matter, and a lot of the things you mentioned are very relevant today, like the matter of inequality. Now, how did Henry George want to solve that problem? So, by the way, the, the name of the full title of the book is Progress and Poverty, an Inquiry into the Cause of Industrial Depressions and of Increase of Wants with Increase of Wealth, the Remedy. Um, so, <laughs> speaking of... <laughs> A little cumbersome. Yeah. Uh, and this was, his first, this was his first book, and his, his writing, it was, I think it was well-written, but it, at certain, it, it, could have, it could have used the updated... Uh, abridged and abridged and modernized version that that Francis Francis Drake did so uh, he enjoyed his purple prose that's for sure yeah. uh, and, but his later his later writing was a lot more concise and a little bit more uh, readable still though it wasn't nearly as turgid as what you would find in some of the economists that came after him like Alfred Marshall exactly Pigo. yeah if I'm pronouncing his name right yeah. Or Keynes and the General Theory, which is an infamously impenetrable tract. Right. Henry Henry George is a famous, famously a, a, like a populist writer, and he was very inspiring. This this book sold millions of copies. Nobody really knows uh, how many copies, but it was somewhere between two and six million copies before 1920 or 1930. So, it, this it, at, by some accounts, it was the the number one best-selling book published in the United States in, in history up to that point. Certainly the most popular economics book probably in the entire world at that time. And it gained the admiration of people ranging from Leo Tolstoy to Albert Einstein. Exactly. It's an influential work. And of course, 
it was popular at that time when the majority of people were not literate. Those sales figures are even more impressive when you take that into account. Right, and people had a tendency then because books were so expensive to pass them around. And so the, the sales figures, I mean, it's, it's hard to say really how many were sold, but it was translated into many languages uh, all around the world. This was a, um, a major... Um, this book was sort of a major event, really, a worldwide event. And in, in some ways, it, it could be looked at as sparking the progressive movement. It's often marked that way. Yet it's also forgotten to a large degree now. So that's that was what I was about to ask is, how could such a popular book that influenced so many brilliant men suddenly become forgotten? If you ask the average person about Henry George, they may know Adam Smith. They may know John Maynard Keynes, but... Who is Henry George, and why is that? I I don't have I don't have an answer, but I I have I have some theories. I think that so the the economist Mason Gaffney uh, he, he's written into an entire book on this subject, uh, and I think that he he gets to um, probably the core of the issue, which is. Uh, was really hard for me to accept for a long time, even after I was a Georgist. Um, I didn't believe the the talk of, you know, that there were a conspiracy to suppress the ideas of not just Henry George, but um, all the classical economists who spoke about land. Um, and I, it, it, it emerged as a major issue after Henry George because he was so incredibly popular. I mean, the, he wasn't saying George's solution wasn't really original or unique. This idea had been around since uh, since John Locke and Barack Spinoza and, and Thomas Paine even. And, and most of the framers of the United States Constitution were supporters of, of this idea as well, influenced by the French physiocrats. So, but it wasn't, it was never a, a populist idea. It didn't, didn't catch on really. And Henry George all of a sudden asked this really important question about poverty and he answered it with the solution that had been known for a long time. Uh, and it became so popular overnight. Essentially, the landed classes felt like they had to fight back against this. And their answer, according to Mason Gaffney, and you can't really dispute it, actually, because Mason Gaffney, if this isn't his opinion, he meticulously cites the references from beginning to end in, in what is a very good um, historical uh, account. And he uses the direct quotes from these famous neoclassical economists who created the entire, basically created that entire discipline. And they explicitly state that they're attempting to bury land from the economics profession. And I didn't really believe it for a long time, but after reading Mason Gaffney's book, it's it's very difficult to dispute that, and it's a it's a conspiracy that's long long ago uh, ceased. So I mean, right. I don't believe the conspiracy is necessarily still still ongoing, except in maybe un, unusual circumstances, but with individual economists. But for the most part, I think economists have simply forgotten about land. Um, and right, that's. That's what I was thinking, that perhaps at some point it was intentional, but at this point now it's just business as usual and we've forgotten about it, we don't care. Exactly. That's how it works. So what is the worst kind of tax? <laughs> Probably a sales tax That's or a, or a value-added tax. 
Now, with sales tax, there are people on the left and the right, people on the far libertarian right, people on the socialist left, who are very much in favor of a sales tax on non-essential goods. What would you say to those people? On, on non-essential goods, it might not be as bad, um, but the, the, in addition to being a regressive tax, so that would address the question of whether or not a sales tax is regressive, but, but laborers make things for uh, luxury goods for, um, uh, for, wealth, for the wealthy. Uh, and even people who, you know, artisans and uh, makers of fine furniture and uh, artwork, they, they supply their, their, um, their works primarily to very wealthy people. Uh, and so if you... And, and to some degree, the wealthy people might not care how much it costs, and um, the uh, it may not have such a large negative effect. But if you look at the economics, it seem, it would seem to indicate that the person who's making a um, finely crafted um, uh, luxury good that's unique will already be charging necessarily as much as he or she thinks that can earn. Right. So if if you're making a piece of furniture, you're not going to charge less than you think you can earn. You're going to charge as mu much as, as possible. And if, if the government says we're going to take 20% of that, then either it doesn't happen or most likely that at least a good portion of that will come out of the wages that, the, that that person is making. Sure, and the same with something like a very expensive wine or a slightly expensive wine. On the other hand, at a certain point, if the wine is $1,000 – its demand might be inelastic because the sort of person who's going to drop a thousand or ten thousand dollars for a bottle of wine would be perfectly willing to drop twelve thousand for it. Right. Well, then why wasn't the person? Why wasn't the producer of the wine already charging twelve thousand then? That is a good question. So I suppose that there are certainly drawbacks to those. So that right. leads us it to the next the one. Thing. And, of course, there's always – you can go around that. You can always deal in cash. You mm -hmm. can barter. You can do whatever. And that would just encourage those activities. Right. So, so then there's the income tax. The income tax, yes. And, and, and the worst version of that would be the payroll tax. Um, and so what that is – it's essentially doing a very similar thing to a sales tax or a value-added tax. And it's adding a certain cost portion on top of – the cost of hiring somebody or of working for yourself. So in the same way that if you have, um, if you're selling a product for $10, um, well, let's say it's a $100 bicycle. If you add uh, $20 onto that price, everyone with a 20% sales tax, everyone who valued that bike um, before between, between the value of 100 and 120 will no longer be able to buy the bike. So only so it excludes an entire section of transactions and specifically the sections of tra transactions from the people who are poorest. So uh, and and income tax or uh, or a um, or a payroll tax does a similar thing with labor and it and it says essentially we're going to exclude all the hiring and labor transactions that within a range of twenty percent. Um, of where the true the true value and cost is, so there has to be a, a surplus there to negotiate with, and so you're you're essentially ta taking away some of that surplus. And anybody who has 
any potential transactions or hiring that would go on that ha that are less than that now reduced surplus won't be able to won't be able to um, negotiate any longer, and you have people who will lose jobs. So it's and again, it's uh, income tax isn't the worst tax because it does capture some some rent. Payroll tax is really, is really bad. It generally now, the word the word rent here. I'd like you to clarify for my listeners because you're using it in a special way. Right. Uh, rent in this case means um, income that was uh, literally torn away or ripped away from uh, from the legitimate producers um, or laborers or save, savers, investors. So anybody who's doing a productive activity, they're earning either wages or capital return. But but rent is, it's where actually it's where we get the terms to rip off and to rob actually. So rent rent literally means income that was ripped ripped off or or robbed. Uh, and we we have we use the terms differently. So if it's an accepted uh, if it's an accepted practice like paying rent for land, we call it rent. We've now commonly call it rent for properties, which a portion of that is legitimate is rent is real land rent. Uh, and when it's we call it commonly we call it ripped off when somebody takes income from from somebody else, but it's not quite illegal. Uh, and we call it rob when when it's illegal but but linguistically those those three words all have the same have the same meaning and the same literal uh, definition um, right it's all it all sounds very unpleasant right but the, what is special about the Georgian conception of rent versus say Adam Smith's or some of the economists that followed after him well it's it's very similar uh, rent rent means income, to put it in a different perspective, rent means income that accrues to somebody in excess of what, what is required for that person to engage in the activity that they were um, doing or to produce um, what they were producing. So in the case of land, um, which is what Georgists are primarily concerned with, um, there is no cost of production. So it has... Uh, but there's cost of development of land, and you have to take it upon yourself to put something there. Right, and and those would be rewarded with wages um, or uh, investment income. So we've gone through the taxes now. Why is the land value tax the tax that Henry George Champion? Okay, so the the reason that um, the land value tax is uh, so good is that uh, it has. Um, well, let me back up. The way, the main way that economists evaluate taxes are based on the progressivity of the tax incidence, where the, where the, 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 the final burden of the tax rests, and, um, and also what's the deadweight loss. And deadweight loss means how much was lost to society in total. Um, so it could be the tax incidence would shift. Um, would shift the burden from consumers to landowners or from uh, poor people to wealthy people, and that would be considered a progressive uh, tax in the common in the co common use of that term. 
Um, right. And, and as we've seen, our progressive income tax has not exactly worked out the way we intended. Right. It doesn't, um, unfortunately. It's, it, as I said before, it's better than, than some other taxes, but uh, especially when, when it's not very, very progressive, um, meaning that the margin rate doesn't, doesn't go very high anymore. Um, the, the benefits that used to exist from that tax are, are no longer um, available. Um, sure, it seemed to be genuinely progressive, say, under Eisenhower, or at least it appeared to be. I know there are some economists claim it was not as progressive as it seemed, but now we have so many loopholes that there are there were extremely wealthy loopholes, yeah. extremely wealthy people who are paying essentially nothing. Right. Uh, and they don't have to pay because, again, the income tax doesn't actually tax um, all income. That would be better if it did. But for a long time, you had dividends and capital gains paying uh, only 5% tax. Um, and I get killed on capital gains tax. Mm -hmm. What are you talking about? Well, now it's 15%. <laughs> right. My goodness. <laughs> but, um, you know, it would be more progressive if, if of course, if... Um, all income were treated the same, um, and but Georgists actually obviously don't don't um, propose either of those either of those things. So Georgists want to replace all of these taxes that some of which may be better or worse than others, but we want to replace them with um, taxes on land and natural resource rents, um, which. You know, it's a, it's a misnomer, really, because uh, a land value tax isn't a tax at all. The economist Fred Foldberry um, mentions that it's a tax in form only and not in substance. So if it's when a, when a judge issues a ruling against um, somebody for for polluting or for causing injury um, with a product that it sells, the judgment um, by the court isn't considered a tax, and uh, neither should um, a land value tax legitimately be considered a tax. And so uh, to go back to, to why land value tax is so good is that it's both progressive because it's, it's a form of a wealth tax, which is um, what um, you know, people like Ms. Piketty and, and other uh, progressives now really want a wealth tax. And Georgists are in partial agreement. We say, yes, a wealth tax is good because it's progressive, but, um, but it's, we should really only tax a subset of wealth. And that's uh, not real wealth, but, um, but privileges. So land titles, um, somebody who, who owns or holds land doesn't create that land. Uh, and they don't create their legitimate ownership over it. They they put up a fence and they can exclude others. And from that, they can receive an income. But uh, the income is created entirely by privilege. And no matter how high or low the price of land becomes, the landowner who has a monopoly over a certain location can't duplicate that location. They can't reduce that location either. So when, when the price of land in New York doubles, there are no entrepreneurs figuring out ways to import land from China. And that's that's the 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 essence of why land value tax is so good, is that it's progressive because it's a wealth tax, but it also has the advantage of the reason. The other reason that 
economists like the wealth tax is that because of something called an ad valorem uh, effect, which means that if you tax the, the market value of an asset, the person who owns that asset is more likely to put it to good use. So if you, um, if you tax the value of cars, somebody who has three cars might decide that they don't really need one of them or two of them. They can sell them to people who, who need them more. Um, or they might uh, give it to Zipcar to for, you know other people in the neighborhood to to drive around. So it'll by 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 having some cost incurred on that on that asset, it causes the person to think to think how can I use this better? Now there are downsides to that, of course. You know, if regardless of what you think about the benefit of having cars, um, when when you tax that that value of the asset. You're essentially reducing the benefit of holding it, and that means that people are going to buy less cars. Um, and if you extend that to all sorts of other capital assets, whatever it is, the value of making, by extension, the value of producing that asset decreases that that capital good, and so it reduces capital formation and it reduces the wealth of the of the country, um, wherever the wherever a wealth tax is in, uh, imposed. But if you do the same thing with land assets or other privileges like like copyright or mining rights, forestry, fishing quotas, pollution permits, anything that has a value that's determined entirely, uh, a supply that's determined entirely by government authority. Because the quantity is unlike the supply of cars, which is determined by the price of of producing it and the demand for cars, the price of privilege is determined by the supply, essentially by the supply of privilege, which is created statutorily. By which, by which all makes perfect sense. However, I think that many of my listeners are wondering now: How would a land value tax work in practice? What exactly are modern Georgists advocating? Well, what they propose normally as, as actual policy proposals is they usually talk about removing other taxes that exist now that have or that are inefficient or unjust and replacing them with with taxes on, on ownership of land uh, or capture of value. It's called value capture. Um, and so we most most jurisdictions already have a property tax. And so what, what Georgists normally propose is that tax assessors would go out and do the same thing, but they would ignore the value of buildings. They would ignore what, what's been constructed on a location and instead assess a tax entirely based on what the value community has, has given to that location. Does that, does that make sense? Now, what exactly was Henry George's opinion of, say, unemployment or inflation? So Henry George believed that the problem of unemployment was created by taxation, basically. And it wasn't just public taxation, it wasn't just income or sales taxes or excise taxes, and it wasn't just trade trade tariffs and things like that. It was also inflation uh, sorry, taxation that was imposed by landowners as a toll or a tribute for access to attributes of nature. And he applied the same kind of thinking to forms of artificial land, like uh, patents, 
because really a patent is really a privilege over manipulating a property of nature in a certain way. There might be good arguments for allowing patents under certain cases, but uh, at least it's it's certain that that there's economic rent in that in that activity of having of having a patent and excluding other people. And the same thing the same thing can be said for for ownership and monopoly of certain locations. If if I own own a corner where there used to be a gas station 40 years ago, uh, and it's increasing in value 10% a year. If I were, it's much better than anything else I can do with the money. If I sell, if I sell the land and put the money in the bank, I'm getting, you know, 1% or 2% or 3%. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing, and even in treasuries, you know, you can get several percent maybe during certain times if you're lucky. But if you have, if you put, if it's in a good location in a city that's developing, if it's not in a city that's deteriorating, you can get 10% a year for a long, a long period of time, or maybe if it's even longer, 6%, but that's still a very good return. And the person who owns it has no incentive to do anything with it that's productive. If you build something there, you have to pay insurance, you have to find out, you know, you have to make sure that what you're doing there is productive and beneficial. Whereas if you have extra money left just sitting around that's ready to invest in that corner of the, of the city, to build a, a new gas station, for example, then you may you may do that. But your alternative is well, let's just find another vacant lot, and I can buy that. You know, if if I'm going to get six percent either way, might as well pick the option with less risk. Um, Precise. No cost of insurance, no cost of no income taxes, things like that. And and this is relevant to me, in fact, because I was looking for a space for a laboratory. And there's a fellow in town who owns quite a bit of land, and he absolutely refused to rent the space at what would be considered a reasonable rate exactly. for that area. He has no desire to do anything with it. He has no desire to give people a rate that is commensurate to anything remotely near it precisely it's an awful area of town <laughs> precisely but he's you know, what he's doing is he's waiting for that that neighborhood to gentrify and and it's very common for um old industrial sites even even actually very nice buildings so in san francisco most of the buildings are really old and there was a a hotel recently that had an art display it was called uh, defenestration San Francisco or something like that so it's but it was a very nice hotel uh, and it remained vacant in one of the most most valuable locations in San Francisco and it was almost a whole city block this giant building and it sat vacant for I think 30 maybe more than 30 years so and it, it could have been it could have been rented but they wanted to be able to sell that that location at a moment's notice to whoever happened to have an, an like they wanted to wait for Google to come along or for uh, a new tech company because they have um, they can afford to pay you know this extremely high high fee and they know that when when Google or Twitter or Salesforce moves in that they're not going to want this 60 year old building. What they're going to want to do is knock it down and build a shiny glass and metal building, right? So 
whatever cost that that they would potentially invest in this in this location to renovate the it was a very nice old hotel so they could have turned it into apart they could have turned them into apartments but it would have taken an investment and if you sink a million dollars into renovating this place then that money is all it's all lost if google some eventually comes in and tries to buy it because they're going to tear it down so rather than this the, the family who owned this location they have properties all over the country and they're they're very wealthy and and owning a hotel is a difficult business and you have to pay taxes for every person you hire and if you make a profit you have to pay taxes on that and they just at a certain point they just said fuck it we're not going to bother with trying to operate a business here instead of operating a business we're just going to leave this here as an investment property and in san francisco that's done quite well and the way that it was finally finally ended is that san francisco had to um had to confiscate it using imminent domain because they, they finally they said we can't handle this anymore because you've got a prime location on a corner and it's been decades and it's an enormous building there and it's just wasted and so you have this really perverse situation where they spent years in court battling over this and about the price of the, the from the imminent domain and the, the 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 previous landowner wanted to use the pre-bubble price and the city wanted to use the post-bubble price which is a big difference and i don't remember who won but it's not it's not really important what ha- what the the conclusion was that the san francisco government taxpayers who who pay uh, a sales tax a restaurant tax an income tax um, all of these things that are essentially stolen from laborers here in that area i mean you can you can argue that 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 money that's been taken from wages and investment in San Francisco will be put to good use. But in this case, what um, what that money that was taken from is now used to spend millions of dollars in court fees and then finally to buy the property from a slumlord who was monopolizing a portion of the commons and extracting value from the community that the community was creating, right? So. The, the taxpayers of San Francisco, it's this perverse situation where they're being forced to act as like an insurance company for for slumlords who run down their properties. And the whole point of this is the city wanted to buy this really expensive location and construct a new building there that would be used entirely to house low-income members of the community. Um, and of course, affordable housing is great, but why why is the San Francisco taxpayer required to to pay to subsidize the housing of low-income residents? It's all backwards because if if the landowner had been forced to pay for what they were taking from the community that whole time, here again we're talking about 30, 30 years of this really valuable location that could have been used for housing if if we had if we change the structure so that the owners of locations have an incentive or remove rather remove the the perverse incentive that we're giving by granting these landowners privilege if you remove that privilege they will no longer be able to get an 
income from wasting locations and they'll put it to good use which which is good for employment right and exactly without and, any grand keynesian schemes and rather than string aggregate demand exactly and rather than paying <laughs> for um <laughs> rather than paying the landowner to do what he should have already been doing we can charge the landowner for not doing what he should be doing and then if you if you want to supply affordable housing with that money you can take the the rents you can redirect the rents that the landowner is is um paying to the city and and use that to build affordable housing elsewhere on land that would be much cheaper more affordable for the city to provide so in an ideal land value tax scenario land would have no sales price so the city would be able to access any land that it wanted to without a without a sale price and the other advantage of that is if you want land for personal use for private use you don't need to go to a bank first because the land has no price you just have to have enough money to pay that year's that year's rent right because okay. the the price of yes. land is the present value of all future rental flows discounted discounted to the present which I think sounds like a pretty radical proposal to most people, and that might be why George is so often grouped with socialists like Robert Owen. Right. Obviously. In that sense, it's very it's very radical. Um, but George was George wasn't a so socialist. He I think he he said he neither approved of that term nor repudiated it, and he said that he was an individual. He he also said that. In some senses, the same the same about individualism too. He said he was neither a socialist nor an individualist. Well, my what I took from Progress and Poverty was that he was very much in favor of the free market. He very much appreciated the advances of the Industrial Revolution, but he also believed there were problems with inequality, and there certainly were, and there certainly are today. Mm -hmm. Right, and he so. His version of the free market, a Georgia's version of the free market, requires that we, we remove the privilege. So if you have, if you allow some people to gain monopoly, and it's not just common land monopoly, it was other monopolies as well. So George was opposed to banking monopoly of being able to create money. He was opposed to public utilities like water and electricity and streetcars being privately owned. So would he approve of Bitcoin? Probably, yes, because it's hard to say. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit hard to say, but... But this is just your opinion. It's technically what he, not, what he, it's what technically not privileged because um, the, the money that Bitcoin is creating doesn't say U.S. dollar on it. So when a, when a bank creates, creates money, it's essentially counterfeiting the, uh, the public money. Um, and so the seniorage, the, the economic term for that is seniorage, and it goes to investors in the bank and to depositors of that bank. Um, and George was opposed to that. And he said that the creation of money was too important to leave up to, to private banks and to the whims of people who might create bubbles. And, um, and also that the, the economic rent, the seniorage from that activity, should go back to uh, the public purse and not be captured by private monopolies. So in all of the in all of these cases about monopoly and economic rent, uh, George was uh, want, in favor of socializing those. But he 
because they were inherently social. Um, the, the only reason there was value there in the first place is because community society was creating more value. So some socialists, he, he, George is a very compelling writer. So socialists that read him tend to process his writing and interpret it as George was a socialist. And, but on the other hand, you have um, the even radical individualist libertarians, market anarchists, who insist that George, George was definitely not a socialist. He was a, he was a radical individualist and a capitalist. Uh, and you have right. both of those, both of those extremes. And, and they're both true to, to an extent. Um, so, and even monetarists like Milton Friedman saw the value in his ideas. Right. Milton Friedman said that uh, Henry George, Henry George's idea was the least bad of the taxes. And, and I think that that's somewhat, somewhat a huge compliment from Milton, from Milton Friedman. Friedman. Yeah, it, it was somewhat dishonest because he knew better. But um, I think what he what he really meant is he's morally opposed to to taxation and government at all. Uh, and so even though he knew that land value tax wasn't actually the least bad, that it was actually very good, he had uh, non-economic reasons for saying that. Sure. He had his backers, and as we discussed earlier, there are some political motives behind people's politics. But getting back to what you were saying earlier, in some ways, I know that it was completely original on George's part because plenty of people didn't trust central banks, even in the early 1800s and the 1700s. But he, in ways he anticipated Hayek there with the boom and bust cycle. Right, right. And recognizing that as a problem, and we we're certainly feeling the effects of a major bubble that has just popped and another bubble that is forming right now. Mm -hmm. And and there, there may be a cause to think that... Um, well, Henry George influenced a lot of people and a lot of uh, schools of thought. And um, Hayek uh, is, is famous for um, helping to develop the Austrian um, theory of, of boom and bust and uh, the, the idea that governments can't really predict um, how much money they sh that should be created and that that's better, that's better left to, um, to, the, to private industry. Uh, and, and, but the interesting thing is Hayek credits Henry George with um, with initially developing his enthusiasm for economics. So Hayek says said that for a, a long time in his youth he was very he was very um, convinced by Henry George's um, writing and believed that uh, that was that was what inspired him to become an economist. Um, and so I I didn't know that at all. I assume that if Hayek had ever heard of George over in Austria, he had just tossed him aside. That is fascinating. No, yeah, he, he was very he was very, very interested in Henry George. Um and even later on he said that the theory was solid. So he, he maintained um that that Henry George's theory was essentially flawless, but he said that there were moral complications with how the money should be spent and how to attribute where land value comes from. And so the, 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 the example that, that's commonly given is, well, what about Disney World? Uh, Disney World is so large that if they, if they buy a large enough piece of land and they invest enough in it, that in some sense, 
to some degree, they can create their own land value. Normally, we, we talk about land value as always being externally created, because if, if you go back to that gas station example, um, you can demolish the old gas station, build a brand new fancy building, condos, you can do anything you want, and that location's value won't change. The, the value of the improvements will change, but the, the value that that actual ground location has, if you were to knock down the building, always remains determined by the, uh, its proximity to amenities and culture in that um, surrounding that the, that the community is donating. So like public schools might increase the land value by 20%, right? And this, the community is supplying that same police protection, the same uh, water and electricity and school services to the owner of a vacant lot as they are to the owner of, a, of an apartment building. The owner of a vacant lot receives all the benefit of the school because the value of his land increases by 20%, but the landowner with a vacant lot isn't using that, that, that benefit, um, if that makes any sense. So they're receiving right. without using, and, and they're benefiting without contributing. Um, Precisely. Detracting, in fact, because who wants to live next to vacant lots with barbed wire? That's where people get robbed. That's where people get raped. That's where, you know, bad things happen. And it looks and it looks bad. So I've gotten that, sidetracked. I mean, it's extremely high praise from Hayek for him to call the theory flawless. I don't think I he said not... He said it would be very strong indeed, I believe, were his words. Very strong indeed. Oh, well, I mean, that's essentially the same thing as flawless from him i would never have thought he would be in favor of right this. any government policy can you imagine him thinking it would be flawless <laughs> he he believed that there were problems with the with intractable problems with the assessment process um and, and that and that was what i was about to bring up mm -hmm. myself and i was going to ask you about it how we were to assess the prices of property in in most cases it's very straightforward because there are, there are multiple methods that can be used and compared so there's redundancy you can um and we know from experience that uh these these various different assessment methods check out they they tend to agree um so there's there's um pretty high reliability and You'll use different assessment methods depending on the particular case of the location. But these days with modern technology, GIS systems, um, GIS makes it really, really easy because you get up-to-date sales information on all nearby properties, vacant lots, buildings. And, um, for example, you don't even need a vacant lot sale next to you to figure it out. You can, you can look at the sale of a house a block away and see that, well, that, that property sold for 500000 and we know what that, that building looks like. We know what that house looks like. It's a three-bedroom house with a one-car garage, two bathrooms, right? So what you do is you compare that, the value of that building, that house, to other houses that look the same but are in different locations, and you can use that to find out what the the difference between those, if you look at that same house way off in, in a outer borough, 
the difference, you know for sure that the difference between those two properties is entirely land value. And that's just one of the potential uh, ways of, of calculating this. But GIS systems, there are some municipalities in the United States that update land values for taxation, for property taxation, by the day. Every day at midnight, they, um, they update all their property taxes. And that's the way it should be. Because you don't in in these these days you don't even need to leave the office to to have pretty reliable um, land value assessments. You need to do uh, surveys out in the field, of course, while you know occasionally, and you need to do updates on those occasionally. But you could do you can do daily a different different regimen of daily, monthly, and yearly reassessments probably without even leaving the, mostly without even leaving the office. Um, so it, it's, it's pretty straightforward right. these days. But I think again, it, I think it is fairly simple now. And even in Hayek's day, I think it would have been fairly yeah. simple with just a basic equation. Hayek's criticism all... was essentially, well, you can think of very unusual circumstances like Disney World, where it becomes a little bit more complicated. And I, th I think there are pretty straightforward ways of dealing with that. My, my personal opinion is that it was sort of a cop out because if if you if you really think about it, there are pretty easy ways to address that that kind of issue. Um, That's true. And calling, I mean, taking in an exception and trying to turn it into the rule is always a sign of someone taking the easy way out of an argument. Right. I mean, if you read between the lines, essentially what he's saying is, um, it's it's not perfect. Um, and this gets kind of obscure, but you can, you can say, well, let's look at, um, two different, two different families. Uh, one of them, they both live next to each other in the same house. Um, they both work from home. Uh, but one of those families operates, uh, a business that's very successful um, and both both of those adults in the family they have a dual income, and so you could say, well, they're they're richer, so they spend more money in that community, go to more local shops, uh, and um, and and maybe they're successful, and people want to be around them, so they they increase the value of the locations in that neighborhood more than the than the neighbor next door who uh, maybe they're raising a family and they're a little bit poor and they don't get out much. I don't know why these people are living next to each other. You know, they, they probably, you know, happens. Sure. But it does it's, happen. I'm sure it does happen. Right. And so, but you can create an example like that where you can say, well, if the government only taxes them based on, and this wasn't Hayek's, Hayek agreed with this essentially, is that both of these families are excluding others from a portion of the commons and from value that the community is creating. But they're not contributing to that value equally. And so the question then, Hayek would agree, okay, so they should each be taxed the same maybe. But then when, after you've taxed them, what do you do with that revenue? Um, like in some sense, the, the very, very, I've never heard any Georgist advocate this, but the concern, this really, something Hayek might have, might have been more open to was this idea, well, what if you could guess how much more the richer, successful family was contributing to local land value and then give them some of that money back in a subsidy? 
Um, and and not, I mean that's not unreasonable. It's not completely it's unreasonable if you I but I think if you start talking about the difficulties of doing something assessments well, that's way harder than figuring out the actual value of these of the land. Most Georgists support a version of basic income, which is uh, the 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 value that's in land is way greater than the value of all existing taxation. So if you if you're in the pure Georgist ideal, we would capture all the rent, and then spend on you know whatever public investment that the government the community thought was reasonable that would increase land value, and then there would be a lot left over. And the question is, what do you do with that money that's left over? And Georgists tend to think, and I agree, that the easiest and simplest, fairest thing, the, the option that's least open to corruption, is you take that money and you divide it up equally and you give it back to people. Um, but, and I'm just guessing, but Hayek might have said, well, that might be immoral because one of those families contributed more to creating like land value than the other. I think it's fruitless to speculate on right. what I don't an know old, what... <laughs> dead, right-wing economist would think. But something interesting, something that is worth discussing right now is the matter of natural resources. And I'm sure you have heard about carbon taxes and some taxes that are meant to reduce pollution. What is the Georgia's perspective on these? Because, of course, natural resources are near and dear to the Georgia's heart. Right. In, in, in economics, uh, when we talk about land, we mean all, all aspects of nature and all natural opportunities, um, which includes um, not just agricultural land, but urban locations, as mentioned before. But it also includes mineral deposits and fishing um, opportunities and anything that's limited and in, inherently limited in supply and supplied by nature instead of by, by people. And so this, that, that, that definitely applies to natural resources. Uh, hydrocarbons and mineral deposits are limited in supply. And in order to extract them, you have to have a monopoly over the surface area where the, under which, uh, above which the uh, minerals are buried. So um, and, and it's, it's somewhat analogous to the monopoly of, of urban locations and farmland. In order to productively use farmland, you have to have secure possession of that location where you can plant the crops and wait for, to harvest them, not be in fear that you'll lose your investment over the period of time um, that, you're, that you're working. So um, similar, similar thing applies to mineral resources. Um, we, have to, we have to be able to grant somebody the exclusive opportunity to extract from certain locations. But because it's, there are only certain locations and you need a land title for that, that's a privilege. And the income from that is called economic rent, just as, uh, um, just as when uh, it's, uh, people pay for commons rent in, in urban locations. And so... Sorry. What, so, so ultimately, what is the Georgia's perspective on, say, reducing carbon emissions? Would it be useful for this purpose? Okay. So, for um, for um, carbon that's in the ground, uh, Georgia's would impose two kinds of fees. One would be um, a a fee for 
how much the value is of that of that monopoly and the other one would be how much pollution is caused from the extraction so if it's if it's surface mining then the fines for pollution might be very high and certain certain kinds of mining techniques might be impossible in certain locations because the community would simply say well that that cost is too great for us uh so tar sands and uh fracking if it's messing up the water table um or um if it's coal mining or strip mining the whole uh whole mountaintops you can see that from uh the destruction of landscape is and and watersheds all of that pollution and dirt flows into the river and stream and everything dies in, in those in those areas so georgists say that um because the the water table and the watersheds and the hills and trees and the mountaintops and the scenery that's all part of land and that's all common property so um just like the the minerals and oil that's in the ground is common property so when you extract from the you extract a resource you have to make sure we have to make sure that the monopolists pay for the value of the resource they're extracting and the damage they're causing, um, and that that same kind of principle um, applies to pollution. That's like air pollution. Um, uh, uh, Georgists who want to limit air pollution propose a variation of cap and trade called cap and share. Um, the difference is if you look at uh, like a Mar Margaret Thatcher's um, variation of cap and trade it's uh it's, it's very very conservative um it's it's a bad it's basically a bad idea uh the the essential concept that they propose is well somebody who's been in a certain place polluting for long enough they've somehow accrued or inherited a a, a right to pollute in that spot so <laughs> Oh, a right to pollute. Yeah, it's some sort of natural, <laughs> some sort of natural right to pollute there, and it, and and it's really absurd because if you talk, if you think about it, imagine there is a river, and a new a new company comes in who has a production process that's going to pollute that river. If you were to then, if you were to say, well, this new factory here has a has a right to to pollute the water and disrupt the fishing community and pollute the water so that the residents downstream are poisoned when they drink, everyone, almost everyone will admit that that, that company has no has no um, legitimate right to do so, at least not with the uh, the permission uh, and compensation to to those who are hurt. Um, but if if we've made a mistake like that sometime in the past um, and perpetuated that mistake for long enough, uh, s standard. It, apparent, it's taken for granted by politicians and even economists that the person who's been polluting something for long enough has inherited a right to continue doing that. Um, almost like when uh, people somehow accru somehow gain easement privileges to walk over certain people's property when they, since they've been doing it long enough. So, but the the Georgist version of that is a cap cap and share. So, rather than saying whoever has been polluting long for a long time, you have a privilege to continue doing that, and you can trade it. 
So if you've been polluting 10 tons of carbon, you can continue polluting 10 car tons of carbon, or you can cut your carbon to five tons and sell that excess to somebody else. So this is this is the inspiration for the standard cap and trade proposal. Is you say, well, the person who who was sneaky enough to start polluting before anybody was watching has has somehow earned a a right to continue doing that. And if you want to limit it, the way you should do it is by giving that person the privilege to continue doing it officially and allow that that privilege to be transferable. So the the person who was polluting 10 tons of carbon, they can shut down their business completely and sell that privilege to somebody else. And the idea is, and it does reduce pollution, um, but yeah. there's a way you can do that without being fascist. So, uh, and the way that the way the Georgists, and I'm not saying that all cap and trade is this fascist way. It's a specific a specific... I was about to say, that's a pretty heavy term. I mean, the Nazis passed some animal rights bills. It doesn't <laughs> mean that all animal rights activists are fascists or anti-Semites. It's fascist in the sense that the government is granting a, a privilege to prey on the community um, sure. and extract value by doing harm. So I think it's a little bit different, but... Uh... <laughs> It is. It is a little bit different. The corporatist model. Yeah, it's. Action. It's. I'm not saying it's like. You know, not unlike what we have here right now. Not necessarily genocidal fascist, but it's in that mentality. <laughs> it's sort of like that mentality is that. Uh, the Spencerian law of the jungle. Kind of yes, uh, and so what it, what Georges would say is fine if you want to limit if you want to limit pollution to a hundred thousand tons of carbon per year, you you go ahead and do that. And then either tax, set a tax rate on the, the carbon pollution that limit it, limits it to a certain, um, a certain output, uh, whatever, whatever you uh, deem is um, appropriate. Uh, or you set the quota at um, whatever I said was the, the pollution uh, tolerance, and then you auction that, that privilege. And so that, that's really the cap and trade version, the cap and share uh, version is that you say, well, we're going to limit pollution to X, and then we're going to sell that privilege to whoever wants it, and they can buy that. And whoever whoever pays the most gets that that pollution privilege. But crucially, the rents go back to the public, and the people who are who are impacted, hopefully, they're they're compensated. As of as perfect. Because you know, how do you determine exactly who was impacted the most and how much that person values it? But in some way, if since there's no way to eliminate all pollution, and nor do we want to, we have to say, well, it, it exists, and we have to limit it. And if we once we agree on that, what's the fairest way to do that? And the fairest way isn't to grant privilege to whoever happens to be polluting. The fairest way is whoever can pay the most to the community for polluting it necessarily means that person will be have the most efficient and least polluting um, systems and the brands will go back to the community and it's a fairly standard way of looking at it and I think uh, there are a lot of supporters of cap and trade now who would agree with that and perhaps even the old Margaret Thatcher I believe it was Margaret Thatcher uh, but Reagan and Thatcher but if 
that, it doesn't that really matter. Thing. Those people, yes, that mentality, the yeah. Hayekian politicians of the 80s. And those those versions of cap and trade might have been sort of phased out, but I believe that when um, when sulfur was limited in uh, in coal um, in coal burning because of the the acid rain scare, I believe that it was pretty much done in. I think it was done in the fascist uh, uh, mode, um, where You're very fond of that word. But let's go into the modern era because it seems like the whole world is stuck in the. 40s. What's a better word for fascist? <laughs> that's, that's not fascist. Uh, authoritarian, corporatist. Corporatist, corporatist sounds okay. nice. Yeah, we can go back and just for every time I said fascist, you can just dub over it with corporatist. Or maybe I'll keep the whole thing, including that little part there. Okay. But what about issues like international trade and inflation? Because I know in Progress and Poverty, George doesn't really touch on these issues in depth. Because, of course, inflation wasn't a major concern. I mean, there had been bouts of inflation in different countries, but it isn't like now. It isn't the perennial boogeyman of the far right. And the not so far right. Mm -hmm. Most inflation is caused by is rental inflation. Um, if you look at the CPI, almost all inflation going back is uh, is inflation of rent, and and I think that the, um, the well the the price of fuel has also played a role in the rise of prices, which is another commons good. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So that's um, you know it's the the value of oil is it's extracted from the ground impacts the price of gasoline at the pump. And the the increase in price of oil is is considered economic rent. Or at least part of it. So whatever subtract subtracting out whatever the cost of removing it from the ground and and minimally processing it, um, that whatever's left is economic rent. So I'm including that as as land essentially. Um, but the the cost so most inflation is increase in value arises from increase in value of locations and natural resources and the the part that's of inflation that's not i believe is mostly cost push inflation meaning that um as the price of oil and gasoline increases some of that um well that adds cost in a same similar way as a sales tax would and you have an increase in in consumer prices uh and which is what we've seen over the past seven years or so right and most and um, most uh, and this is when I say also when I say inflation I'm talking about uh, inflation with respect to to wages so inflation is also the um, a monetary phenomenon too and most most inflation or most creation of money occurs from from private banks um, almost all of it and for example. Michael Hudson says that I believe he said 85% of uh, bank lending finances the uh, purchase of things that already existed, by which he I, I think he meant and specified real estate uh, and land. So he might have there might he might be including something else there that uh, I'm not thinking of, like capital goods that already exist. That, I mean, that sounds perfectly reasonable. Land is a major expense. Right. And since he said that, it might, things might have changed. 
credit card might have increased a little bit, uh, student loans might have increased a little bit. But uh, we can say if you take what he said seriously, then at least most bank lending finances real estate. And um, truth is nobody really knows exactly how much of that is land, um, but it's it's somewhere between uh, 20 and 40 uh, percent. And the, the, the kinds of properties that banks are financing might be ones that turn over faster or in cities with higher land. So the ratio of land value to building value increases the closer you are to cities. And within cities, the closer you are to the center of cities. And so I, I would guess that most of the bank lending is also taking place in cities and in suburbs. So I think it's I think it's safe to say 40%, somewhere around 40% of bank lending finances land. And the interesting thing about when a bank issues a loan to buy land, there's something really um, unique about that, that I think a lot, I think most economists don't don't even realize. So when, especially the the people on the right who worry about inflation, um, no, that what what that is is that if if a a business is creating going back to bicycles, if a if a factory is producing bicycles at a certain cost of one hundred dollars per bicycle, remember the the sales tax example where it increases the cost. Well, if if that factory gets a loan from the bank. Uh, to invest in its production process, to for training or automation or whatever, whatever it is, whatever the, the business is, is investing, the, the entire objective of doing so is that it's going to bring down their future cost of production. So it makes production of bicycles cheaper and more accessible, and it increase essentially it increases the supply of bicycles because you have the same demand and you have a lower cost. So you have an increase, but that what that does is it increases the supply of bicycles. And in this example, you have a creation of money, an increase in supply of money, and then balancing that, you have necessarily an increase in the supply of goods and services. Um, so there's no inflate, there's no inflation. The only reason that a business would would take a loan and invest it in uh, in an enterprise is if the increase in productivity is expected to balance the additional cost, more than balance the additional cost. And I, I think that, I mean, I don't mean to make it sound like no economists understand that, but it's it's often seems to me that they that they don't, and some of them don't understand that. Which, before we go on to international trade, this raises an interesting question. Mm. What do Georges think of Keynesians? post-Keynesians, neo-Keynesians, any of the innumerable schools that have cropped up? Well, I don't know what, what all Georges think. Some are, some are of fans. Of course. Um, I, I think that there's, that there's some, that there's, I, I personally think Keynes was, was pretty brilliant in many cases, but his, the people who, who profess to be implementing his, his ideas don't seem to be very successful to me. And it, I, my guess is that it works in the short run um, or the medium run, but eventually... In the long run, we're all dead. Exactly. In the <laughs> long run, we are all dead, as you said. Um, exactly. I mean, in the New Deal programs, for instance, some of the programs that were founded by FDR were dismal failures, mm -hmm. including one called the NRA, 
and not to be confused with the modern NRA. And even Roosevelt himself admitted to this. So there is some there are some problems with implementing fiscal stimulus programs. Mm-hmm. So as you said, in the short run, it can boost aggregate demand and boost employment, but with the Georgia's model, that might not be that necessary because these slumps would be reduced. So Georgia's have will have two main criticisms of of uh, that kind of Keynesian proposal. One will be that whatever the government's investing in has to be productive, it has to be a beneficial investment. And the problem is that uh, if if the government builds a new transit system, uh, let's say like in San Francisco is in dire need of, of, of a totally renovated transportation system. Now, uh, it's, it's incredibly important and very productive and would be very beneficial. The, the problem is value capture. Investing in a transit system might have a 15% rate of return to society. And San Francisco could probably get a federal federal loan and grants and you know in in this modern environment they could get very good rates on the interest for a loan on this but if they build it how do they how do they capture that increase in value to the community and the problem is they want to the only thing that seems like modern planners and especially in San Francisco is constrained because of prop 13 which outlaws all basically all property taxes um, changes in property taxes um, the the only way they can capture that value is by taxing production, taxing sales. So we have uh, taxing employment uh, with pay, payroll taxes and sales taxes. And as we as we talked about earlier, that reduces employment, it reduces wages, and it increases costs, um, and it makes businesses less profitable. So you have this really strange, perverse situation again where. The government wants to invest in this amazing, this amazing improvement, but they want to pay for it by punishing the people who use that improvement. So, um, or punishing people who want to do something that we can all essentially agree is is beneficial. Why, when we can, when we can recoup the the value that that inve- that that public investment in infrastructure is creating by capturing those increases in land value. Um, we could more than pay, way more than pay for all infrastructure investments that are that are useful, and this is this is proven many t- many times. And this is one of the areas where Henry George has, has received actual like lasting credit for his his contribution. It's called the Henry George theorem, and uh, Stiglitz is most popular for uh, most um, well known for popularizing naming that theorem or popularizing that theorem, but I, it wasn't even just Stiglitz. So it's, it's very well understood now. And what it really says is that um, except in the very least beneficial of all public investments, that the increase in land value is more than the cost of creating that infrastructure or that improvement. And we can see that all over. The, the, we have empirically where a new train goes in and land values just within the near the stations increase way more than the entire cost of of the of the train expansion. Um, so it, it, we we know that this is an, an option, but it's not an option for San Francisco. And what that means is because they they have a very hard time capturing that value, and they have to do it by punishing people who are creating value. That means that, and this is r- really crucial, is that 
only the very most productive, the very most beneficial public investments can be afforded. Um, you hear constantly about the dire need of investing in these things. And everyone says, well, we have a low interest rate and we need all these investments and repairs, but we can't seem to af afford it. Why is that? That doesn't make any sense. Anything that's beneficial necessarily increases the, cost, the, the value of land in the area where that benefit is being created. So it makes no sense that we can't afford to, to pay for these improvements. Now, so that's, that's the one, going back to Keynes, that's one aspect of, of, the, of the challenge that Georges would raise is, well, okay, you're, you're creating these, these improvements, but you're not creating anywhere near as much as should be created because, because your value capture methods are so poor, you can only invest in a public investment with a 20% rate of return. When really, we should re invest in public infrastructure and schools that have a 20% rate of return, a 15% rate of return, a 10% rate of return, a 5% rate of return, maybe even a 2% rate of return. But we can't do any of that. We can only invest in things with more than 15% public rate of return. And I mean, I mean, to be fair, the general theory can be interpreted in any number of ways, and I'm sure a Georges could claim it as his own. Claim what is? Since it, the uh, Keynes's general theory, it is yeah, the arcane and esoteric tome of economics. Yeah, there are there are there are definitely Georges who consider themselves Keynesian. Um, numerous Georges who. There's even I think there is even a geo Keynesian Facebook group. Um, I yes I am a member. It's not of very a, active, but no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, there are a couple members who post regularly, at least for a period of time. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure. Well, I don't want to name specific people who are no, who are no name names. Uh, but I, I I think there are definitely Georges who are Keynesian. Um, that said. That's a problem with if you just if you if you're just a Keynesian and you try and implement these ideas, you're hobbled essentially because you're you're it's a good idea and in, in some sense it makes sense, um, but you can't really implement it as well as it should be. And the second the right. second challenge is that to the extent that this really works, what you're doing is you're increasing the rents in those areas, uh, and those rents aren't going back to the community. So. Uh, a new transportation system gets built in San Francisco and the increasing value of land and the rents aren't redirected back to the community, back to the residents who live there. What that means is, well, we have rent control in a lot of buildings who are set in the set made in the seventies and earlier, but other people, their rents reset every year. And so what that means is there's all this um, hysteria about gentrification and it's completely reasonable. Because you, you, these people who may or may not want a new school, um, a new school gets built, and if it's near them, their rents increase greatly. Uh, and the benefit doesn't, it doesn't go to who it should. And the people who pay the cost, the, pe the people who rent their homes near where improvements are made are taxed twice. Remember, as I said before, there's public taxation and private taxation. So the, the resident who, who rents an apartment near a public investment is taxed twice. Once they're taxed by the government, um, who 
says, well, you need to pay for this public transportation system and we'll take it out of your wages or out of things that you buy. And, and it's, a, it's a completely arbitrary tax. You know, they, they may receive benefit from that or they may not, uh, but it's taken directly from their wages. Now, after that investment goes in, they have to pay more for their rent. And the, their, the, if they have a job at a business nearby, that business has to pay more for their rent. So it, it, it means, one, that they might lose their job. It also means that they might lose their apartment. And that's gentrification. Is gentrification is about people getting people getting pushed out or excluded from where they live based on what it otherwise would probably be in most cases considered improvements, and they're they're completely rational to renters and 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 activists who act on behalf of renters. They say, well, of course we're going to oppose Google because that's going to increase our rents, but we don't work at Google and we're not benefiting from that and we have to pay all the costs because we're taxed we're taxed by our landlords. I mean that seems like a very delicate issue and finding a balance would be nearly impossible because on one hand you have the wheels of progress on the other you have people who are losing their homes. Uh, does Georgism solve this problem in some way? It it definitely addresses the problem because uh when people oppose gentrification, I don't, I don't think what they're, I don't think they really mind Whole Foods. I think, I think most people, especially if they could afford Whole Foods, would be perfectly fine with a new grocery store. It doesn't have to be Whole Foods, whatever. Um, but it's a vacant lot right now, and it has been for let's say thirty years. Uh, I, I think it's, if you if you look at it, it's really absurd on one hand that these community members would be opposed to turning a vacant lot into a grocery store where people can yes live. when i when i read that initially i was read what? a bit of high uh, about that story oh that happens all the time <laughs> well one of the many stories then i was in hayek mode so it was particularly infuriating to me but i didn't fully understand the ramifications of gentrification at that time on the other hand, if there's giving decent jobs to people with few or no skills, then I'm not sure why anyone should oppose it. It's not the same as Google moving into a poor neighborhood. It's it's it comes down partially to fear. There are people with low incomes who, or maybe even no incomes, maybe who are a fixed income that uh, would be really opposed to a grocery store coming in because. Uh, Maybe they get their food delivered. Right? I mean, it's it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be everyone opposed to it. But if you if you see the the outrage and hysteria that is almost ubiquitous in in poor neighborhoods when uh, when a new proposal um, is is uh, is made to create an investment that generally would uh, benefit the community. It's it's like if you were working at a job and you opposed to the employer giving extra benefits like like health because that would make your job more more desirable to other people who might be more qualified and they might want to come in and take your job and it's it's sort of it's sort of absurd that you, you don't want your wages to increase because then somebody else might want your job like and it's, it's sort of similar situation as like 
and I'm not saying that all forms of gentrification are necessarily improvements, but you can certainly find tons of examples where, um, of course, where, it's, where yeah. it definitely is an improvement, and yet you see outrage at the idea of bringing that improvement about. And this all comes back to the fact that those people will be excluded; they'll they'll be displaced. But if you if you if you change the way you look at it to a, a George's perspective. Um, those people wouldn't would no longer probably be excluded. Those those renters would um, would be able to live in the increased supply of housing, and when that when that new business comes in, the grocery store, it'll increase rents. But where do those rents go? Those rents are captured by the public and either redistributed as jobs or as social safety net or as a basic income, um, and it decreases rents. So on one hand, and their local taxation tend to be the most regressive as well. Like uh, there's um, because somebody, if somebody's living in San Francisco or has a business in San Francisco, they can easily pick up and move across to Oakland, right? So the taxes, the the taxes locally are very regressive because people have choice of where they want to live, and you can. Just like, yes, but I would much rather live in San Francisco than right. Oakland. And, and, and in, but in Portland, you have people who live in Vancouver, and they buy everything in Oregon, so they don't have to pay sales tax. And then sure. they live in, uh, I don't know exactly, but so the, the way it works out is you can you can travel and you can change your location to avoid these local taxes. So they happen to be very regressive. Um, and so what what it what happens is if you if you remove taxes that are regressive on wages and sales, you have this relatively poor community there who rents. On one hand, their taxes go down, there are more jobs, there are higher wages, and their rents go down, and there's a higher supply of housing. Um, and whatever increase in rent accrues to that neighborhood is hopefully more, to you know, ideally, at least some of that is going back to those residents who live there who rent. Um, so it's not, I, I don't claim that it's perfect and I don't claim that nobody could ever be displaced, but it's, well, it's a tough problem. Yeah. It's, it's a very tough. I problem. think the solution is compelling. Um, and I think that if you, when examining it carefully, a lot of the absurdity, um, I think would clearly the, go away by the word gentrification has become a curse word mm -hmm. almost no one thinks of it as an, in a positive light. Even people who are in favor of development, they prefer euphemisms. Such as? Progress. Right. Yeah. Prosperity. Development. An advance in the community. Right. Anything you want to think Except of. Except for gentrification. Except for that. Because there are a lot of people who are not familiar with the word and the ones who are do not like it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I've had quite a bit of Shiraz. <laughs> I'm going to ask about international matters from a modern Georgist perspective. There are many people, many ordinary people, who talk about the loss of manufacturing positions in this country to China, to any poor country that can produce the goods cheaper than we can. Now, how does... Georgism address this problem? Well, um, Georgism reduces 
taxes that are imposed on production. It reduces taxes that are imposed on labor. And essentially what that d does is it decreases the cost of labor and an inve of investment without decreasing the returns to labor, without reducing the wages. So normally the cost of, of wages or of, of, of employment is the, the, you know, it's the wage that you're hired at plus the cost of, of taxes. So you can remove the tax portion that's added to the cost of, of wages without reducing the wages. You know, you, that will actually increase, the wages will actually increase indirectly. So, um, so essentially you make domestic labor more competitive. And if you look at, for example, you mentioned China, is if you if you examine their public finances, all all land is owned uh, publicly there, and and now they've they've done long long leases, but essentially they're so the, the the leases are basically like ownership, but they have when the government sells these leases, they get a huge upfront revenue, and that upfront revenue is about forty percent of local government spending, and a lot of government spending is is local in China at the provincial and city city level so about 40% of all government expenses are financed sort of a, a, a land value tax in disguise uh, it's a it's a it's a short term one off that that local governments are doing with they're selling the land that had been commonly owned and now they're going to privatize it uh, but for a long time now that has greatly reduced the cost of doing business in China. And it's not just, you know, that's, that's not the only, that's not the only reason. Um, wages are obviously also lower there, but that, that's, has a huge impact, obviously, if you're talking about 40% of all, of all taxes, uh, at the local level. And what we could do the same, we could, we can drop it down to, we could go all the way to a hundred percent, um, or nearly a hundred percent and way more. We could, you know, we could, uh, if we wanted to, we could even, we could even subsidize, uh, you know, investment in technology. A lot of economists argue that technology is under, uh, is undersupplied by the private market because. And I'm one of those yeah, people. For good reason. It's, it, it's, uh, because there's no, there's, there's very, there's not a good way to internalize the benefit that, uh, that, people are, are creating through research and development. Um, the only way to do it, well, you can do it in the short term by keeping things secret, and you can do it a little bit longer by getting patents. Patents have their own their own damaging costs, though. Uh, but from an... thing we could do is issue, instead of patents, we could issue uh, prizes, where you could say if, if you develop a molecule that fits this criteria that... Um, this works particularly well for non-medical molecules uh, and materials because you you can have very objective properties that are needed. Um, well, if you develop this material that meets these properties, you'll get a very large public grant. And but the condition would be that you can't issue a patent on it. Your compensation has to be from the from the prize, right? Uh, but you could do it with the patent as well. But I, I mean, I'd prefer just having the prize. Uh, and incentive is an example of incentivizing innovation, even though it is backed mostly by private corporations. The government has posted some items on there, though. 
And these challenges, individuals or groups rise to the occasion and do what is necessary. Much more cheaply, mind you, than an institution or a corporation would do it. Right. That's definitely true. So getting back to uh, international competitiveness, uh, um, there's, I I think, a lot of uh, opportunities exist for um, reducing taxes on things that make um, us less competitive. We can also address, uh, we can use the surplus revenues to uh, address uh, issues of undersupply of uh, research and development uh, and patent reform. Uh, These are all um, opportunities uh, that would make um, that would make clustering investment in the United States more profitable and uh, and cheaper. And that's another thing. One of the reasons why I liked Henry George is he recognized, perhaps before many people before him or after him, the importance of innovation, of technological innovation in the area of economics. And of course, he was writing before Schumpeter. Well, I don't know if you've read this, but Henry George also wrote about solar power at a certain point um, in his uh, in his book, uh, Protection or Free Trade. He was writing about a comparative advantage. Um, and he wrote that uh, you can Google it, Henry George and solar power. It's very short. It might be worth reading as well. Um, I had no idea that that was even an idea at that time. When was this written? Late 1800s. Um, he wasn't. He probably wasn't the first person to think of of um, getting somehow harnessing the energy of the sun. But what he has essentially said is that there's no way to predict, and it's not set in stone, which locations will be valuable. He said, right now, regions that experience drought and a lot of sun sunlight may appear to be have a, a low l- lower value, but exponentially increasing technology may someday turn people enable people who live in that area to have a comparative advantage at generating electricity uh, and trading that with and making those locations very valuable. Um, and he was talking about, trade and rent in, in that case. But but it, again, he was talking about uh, exponential growth of technology. Which is extremely prescient. Yeah. Extremely, because even today, most people think of technological innovation as a linear thing, not as an exponential one. Not most people I know, but... <laughs> you don't live in the deep south. <laughs> <laughs> you you live out on the west coast. <laughs> oh, and that is a positive note. Endless space, Henry George, fine writer, excellent thinker, and hopefully his ideas will become mainstream again. Very relevant for today, I have to say. Every everything that you read, it it feels as though he could have written it five years ago, and it, that's my that was my feeling really reading it. Um, what did you think? Oh, definitely, and I think it would be nice to also, before we go, talk a little bit about what Henry George would think of the housing bubble in two thousand eight. Ah, uh, right. So, housing housing bubble again is also a bit of a misnomer. 
Um, there's every time you hear about um, an increase in how in in <clears throat> house prices uh, or a housing bubble, that's that's pretty much inaccurate. Um, in fact, more than 100% of the increase in house prices comes from land. And you, you might wonder, how can it be more than 100%? <clears throat> and it's because the value of buildings, just like a car, decreases as soon as you drive it off the lot. So uh, as soon as you construct a building, it's made out of things like brick and wood and cement and uh, mold and ants and uh, ice will immediately start detracting from that value. And if it's customized to that owner, that, that you know, it has its maximum value probably well as in the when it's owned by that person who commissioned the construction. Um, but so so the value, especially modern houses that are built very badly, they decrease in in value quickly. Um, and so if it if you can look at it this way, so if if the value of a house of a property is 50% land and 50% building. Actually, in the United States, I think the average is closer to one third. So if it's one third building and one and two thirds, uh, one third, third land, two thirds building, and then you see that the value of that property increased by 10%, what that really means is that the value of the land, assuming that one third uh, um, ratio holds, it means that that land value actually increased by more than 30%, um, if, that, if that makes sense. Do you okay. follow? I do. Okay, good. Because um, it's, it's a little bit confusing, I know. So, um, so... Well, it's definitely different than the standard narrative, yes. Exactly. And I'd really appreciate it if all of your listeners would correct people, particularly journalists who make this mistake. I, I really don't ever want to hear somebody talk about house prices increasing or or land or uh, housing bubbles because that's not what's happening. And to well, use the, way to use the is... wrong language, it's 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 really it. I think it really damages the ability of having a intelligent conversation about these issues. In in the defense of all non-Georgian imbeciles. In a sense, the word housing prices is shorthand for land because everyone right. recognizes right. that land is the most important part of a house's price. No, no, people. This is where I can tell you people don't. I've had I've had arguments with with economists who think that the value of buildings increases. So I'm talking about people, not economists. Well. Maybe econ maybe maybe regular people are more have more common sense than that. But and it's it's and there might be certain cases. Um, like I remember, I was having I had a d debate with one one person who made uh, she made a really good argument that well, in certain locations there are antique houses that are similar to antique cars and they could increase in value and that that's not. But again, it's taking a very it's taking in a in a, some exception, some rare. I think exceptions. that's that's probably an exception. <laughs> Just like extreme exceptions, exactly. So and so, I don't but, mean be rude to these journalists and other people. I just mean politely correct them because it's. I I I find it upsetting when I hear about um, people who who misuse that term because people then don't think about it properly. Uh, I think using the wrong word 
really does, if you at least using the right word, would confuse people and make them think, force them to think about it. What do you mean land? Land bubble? What? They used to call this land mania. So this has been going on for hundreds of years. By the way, every 18 years, there's a, there's a land bubble. But it used to be called um, land mania back in the day. But now we call it a housing bubble. Land ma- How quaint is that? We should get some mustaches and wax them up. <laughs> Brilliant. But are you saying that, of course, our financial system now is much, much more sophisticated and intricate than when Henry George wrote. Are these ideas still relevant, still useful, in spite of all of this stuff we have piled on top of Absolutely. this very essential good? Absolutely. Because every 18 years, not only does the land, does the land bubble uh, collapse, but you also have a banking crisis. So it was in 1990, it was the SNL crisis. Uh, and I think it skipped, it skipped one during uh, World War II. But you know, essentially, it's with very few exceptions, it's about every 18 years. And when you combine these, these land manias with the modern financial system and securitization and all these other neat little tools, um, you're essentially, and again, one way, one way important thing to mention is that the interest that you pay to a bank uh, for for um, a loan that you've taken to, bar, to, to buy a property, the, at least, well, um, between 30 and 70% of that interest that you pay is actually land rent um, redirected to the financial institution. And you can see it, it's a little bit hard to understand, but you can see it more clearly if you imagine a situation where all of that land rent were captured by the public. There's now no longer any more capitalized land value. There's no longer a land price. It's a low land price. You might pay $10,000 or $100,000 for a property that was worth 10 times more than that. Um, so uh, you, you, we, could, we could reduce the value of land probably between, to, by between 85 and 95% probably without much difficulty. So the the all of the, all of the value that you that you would have been paying to the bank as as interest payments for the land purchase portion all of that would be instead going to the public. So um, it's very much it's very much relevant uh, in, in the modern uh, modern it's it's a little bit more disguised than it used to be, but it's economically it's the same which would be incredible. And one of the economists I follow closely is Steve Keen, mm. who emphasizes the importance of private debt, because, of course, Ben Bernanke and some of the other fellows at the Federal Reserve didn't seem to think that consumer debts were that important prior to the crisis. Mm-hmm. So what you're proposing here would definitely reduce private debts, mm-hmm. because one of the major expenses for an ordinary person is living, mm-hmm. right? Just living somewhere, and it would help limit the private debts to th- financing things that are beneficial or productive. So we never really fully answered the inflation question from before, but we can quickly go there right now. If you when you when you borrow money to improve the production of bicycles, you have an increase of supply of bicycles that balances the increase in money that was used to 
make that improvement. But what happens when you get a loan from the bank to invest in buying a, a property of nature, uh, either a patent or, uh, well, especially let's, patents are a little bit harder, but let's say you use it to buy um, a location in the city, um, a, a vacant lot or even a house with on top of land. Um, so nothing new is created. So you have an increase in supply of money, you buy, you buy $200,000 worth of land, but the supply of land hasn't increased. The supply of land hasn't changed and the productivity hasn't changed in the economy. So you have, it's a very similar situation where you, the, the private banking sector creates money and also privatizes the senior age, um, but it creates money. And then there's no, there's no increase in productivity or production to balance out that increase in money. That's why, this is essentially the root cause of why you have the, a land bubble every 18 years. And going the full explanation of this is it would be, um, I don't know if it's probably the right um, forum to have that whole conversation, but we can if you want. Um, but that's the that's the basically the root cause of it is that it's a cycle that feeds on top of itself. You create money, which um, settles down on land again. That increased value is used as collateral. That increased value can be used to ref. Uh, refinance your home and um, get a mortgage on something you bought 10 years ago, basically. So it increases consumer demand. You have all these people who feel themselves getting richer and people who take out second mortgages to capture that future capitalized land increase and spend it right now. Uh, and so you have all these, these different things that feed onto, into each other and you have an increase in supply of money um, without any increase in productivity. And remember going back to the old analogy of private and public, or rather public and private taxation. So when you have an increase in, in rents, now new businesses that want to start, or new families that want to start, they have to pay a higher private tax to landlords for the privilege of being able to um, use their own hands, use their own brain, uh, affect the vision that they have, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not all at once, but as the value of land starts to skyrocket, this private tax on producers, laborers, family, families, or people who pay rent, that increases and it acts in a way to stifle production on its own. And when you, when rent, when land prices or housing bubbles, go parabolic, at a certain point, can't increase anymore because people can't afford to pay it. Because remember, the current price of land is the, is the capitalized value of the future rents. So if people are expecting much higher rents in the future, that, that you can draw that all the way back to the present. And what it means is it's an artificially increased um, price of land. And it means that somebody who wants to construct a building has to build the building outsized much larger than it otherwise would have been um because they're they're paying for the building including all these future rents and they have to pay for all the taxes that are increased when they build this so um at a certain point the fundamental underlying economy can no longer support 
the land bubble, because the land bubble has a real cost that people don't normally recognize. Um, and then there's the crash, of course, and you, the whole banking mess that we know. But at the, at the end, it takes a couple of years to sort out. But what happens is the fundamental economy sort of hits a, hits a bottom and kind of in recovers because a lot of the, the fundamental productive capabilities are still there. All you've lost is land value and, and liquidity. So if the, if the government and the Fed is standing there ready to, to prevent the loss of, of, of liquidity um, and businesses are still around and consumers are still buying things, you have a situation where land values have collapsed and therefore these private taxes have collapsed. And that's why you have this massive, and that's actually why in between the 18-year cycle, you have whatever, it's, it's like a 10-year thing where you have the big stock bu bubble um, burst, like the, the 2000 tech bubble. So it, it really, it, it has a really interesting dynamic that um, is somewhat reliable. Uh, and it comes all from this land speculation. Like cicadas. They come around every 17 years. Yeah, I didn't know that. Well, I know they were... Is it really 17 years? It is 17 or 23 prime numbers. Wow. That's what they're fond of. And there is an explanation for that, but I forgot it a long time ago. Me too. I don't remember. I watched a video on it once. <laughs> but it's, it's quite all right. Oh, what shall we move on to? Yes, it, it might be. I mean, if I really wanted to be an asshole, I'd find some radical Austrian. Now, you mentioned Fred Fulvery. Mm -hmm. He's a friend on Facebook. I haven't interacted with him much. Yeah, he's but... he's a bit of a of an anarchist, you could say, or an Austrian economist. Um, but he's a Georgist too. Um, oh. Really nice guy. Really smart. He he is on record actually predicting the um, almost the exact timing and the nature of the uh, of the 2008 housing and banking collapse and the 2009 depression um, and he, he he predicted the exact nature of it saying it would be a housing a housing bubble and banking collapse and he did this in the 1990s before there was any, before anybody was talking about housing this is before any kind of housing bubble had even started. This is where we, st we were still recovering, basically, from the SNL crisis, when he said 2008, 2009. And then he reiterated, he, he never changed the time, and he, he reiterated it a couple times. Um, and so, and, but he's almost no, you can look it up. So there's one called a, um, an award for calling the crash. It's a, an economics paper by... Um, Mason Gaffney. Yeah. I'm trying to recall if Steve Keen included him in the list of people who predicted it. No, he's almost been completely economics. excluded. Um, unfortunately, and it's really sad because not only was he the only person to really get this right, especially so early, he was the only person to. Um, like he had a, he has a, he has an actual theory backing this up, and then he he set a date. And he was firm on that date, and he wrote in I think in 2000 around 2005 2006 he wrote uh, a, an article or a book a little booklet and it's called the depression of 
2008 or the depression of 2009 and you can read the, the whole this whole article this whole paper was called an award for calling the crash and it's all about how unfairly he was excluded from the economics establishment um and he was he was recommended by numerous economists um for this award uh but it was all it was given all to steve keen probably got one uh <laughs> <laughs> Australian bastard. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 really unfair. Um and he wasn't the only Georgist economist actually. Uh Fred Harrison. He wrote a book called uh The Depression of Two Thousand Ten. Also I believe in the nineties or but anyway, he wrote he wrote definitely wrote articles about the housing bubble and worldwide depression of 2009 and he wrote about that also in the 90s and early 2000s so not only does georgism have policy recommendations and a nice theoretical framework but it's also been useful in predicting things right it has practical applications fred Vold foldvary's article or his paper is called a geo-austrian synthesis uh, the business cycle, a geo-Austrian synthesis. And I have seen that, and I assumed he was just a standard Austrian economist, which is one of the reasons why I didn't reach out to him, uh -huh. because I just wasn't in the mood. <laughs> Not in the mood for Austrians. He's, he's, he's a nice guy. He's really, and he's good to talk to. Really conforms quite well to the... Uh, to the neoclassical ideals. Um, and that's not surprising because neoclassical economists assume away all land and economic rent. They assume that there's no economic rent. And that's how you can get models that nicely balance where the marginal product of labor goes to wages from the person who made it and these kinds of things. But if you include a, a third factor that's worth 35% of GDP, that explicitly states as part of its properties, oh, this value is being taken from labor, well, then your model obviously no longer makes sense. You have this perfect model that says, let's, ex let's exclude 35% of GDP. It doesn't make any sense. And yet this is the standard. This is almost all the con and, and maybe And maybe I'll just make a plug for Mason Gaffney's book because it's, again, it's really exceptional. And it's called... Um, I don't know if I named named it earlier. Yeah, it's I'll put the link on the blog. Okay. I'm going to put links to lots of stuff on the blog. Excellent. It's called um well the book that it was published there's an art name of the paper and then there's the book and uh the book is called Corruption of Economics and it's written uh the other half of it is Fred Harrison and I haven't read that portion but I've heard it's good. Um and Mason Gaffney's paper was uh, included in that, um, and it's called uh, Neoclassical Economics, a Stratagem Against Henry George, or something something like that. You'll find it, um, but it's really, really good and worth reading. Yeah, I, I looked him up the other day when you mentioned his name, so I saw the books he's written. Unfortunately, they're not for Kindle, so I will have to contact him and... <laughs> Say hey, I can convert your books for you. Oh, that would be great. I think these he's. I remember he, somebody mentioned that he didn't know how to do that, or that. Um, put it there's another good one that he wrote that's edited down. He has edit editors that removed a lot of the citation, a lot of the economic jargon, and tried to make it really readable. 
Um, Do you know him personally? Uh, Mason Gaffney? I've, yeah, met, some, I've met him. Yeah. Um, yeah, sort of. Some correspondence or anything well, I, like I, that? I met him in uh, California at the Council of Georgist Organizations this, this year. Ah, uh, okay. But yeah, that was the first time I'd, I'd met him. Uh, his other his other book that's been um, it's a little it's a little bit shorter and is edited out from all the heavy economics and it's called the Mason Gaffney Reader, and um, and that was published by a nonprofit that's pretty small and they don't have that on Kindle but every person I recommend it to they say well don't you have a Kindle so 